things we ask in your son's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. This morning, we continue our ongoing series in the uh, New Testament's last book. In fact, the Bible's final book, uh, the book of Revelation, Uh, a a series that we have titled Checkmate. Uh, The battle continues, but the war has been won. That really, I think, encapsulates the the essence of the message of the book of Revelation. That's a book that's full of uh, crazy imagery and symbolism. We're going to see some of that this morning. Uh, some of the more dramatic imagery in the book. And, and because of all that imagery and symbolism, it's a, Revelation is a type of writing we have said repeatedly, if you just joined us sort of more late in this series, it's a type of writing that was a little more popular around the first century when this book was written than it is today. In fact, it doesn't really exist in the world today, and so it ste- seems very strange to us, and it can be confusing. Uh, but fortunately, the overall message of the book is very clear, and this is it. God, Revelation is God's message to his people, that though we exist in a world where gospel ministry is very difficult personally and it comes with costs associated with it, nevertheless, the war has been won. And we need to have that perspective as we serve our Lord faithfully. This morning we're in Revelation chapter 12. Believe it or not, we're halfway through this book already. 22 chapters in Revelation we're uh, we're beginning and we'll actually look at chapter 12 this morning. This chapter consists of... um, a drama of sorts, as is often the case with Revelation. Uh, A scene plays out before the Apostle John's eyes, and he records that scene for us. Now, this particular vision actually consists of three short scenes that all overlap. They're very similar to one another in some important ways, and yet slightly different. And all three of them together form a message, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. So here's what we're going to do. Just before we dive into the actual uh, text of the book of Revelation, I'm going to read it here in just a moment. Before we dive into the text of Revelation, first I'm going to make one comment about a recurring symbol that appears repeatedly throughout the book of Revelation. I alluded to it last week and I said I'll tell you about it later. Well, today's the later, okay? So we're going to take just a couple minutes and try to get our heads around this recurring symbol, and that is the symbol of a time period of three and a half years or 42 months. You'll see that in the text here in just a moment. Then we're going to actually just look at the three scenes to get our heads briefly around what's going on and where we're going to really land is what does this mean? What is a Christian today supposed to take from this chapter? So that's a little look at where we're going. With that in mind, let me read for us Revelation chapter 12. John writes this, Then a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant, and in fact was crying out in the birth pains of the agony and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She did give birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne, and the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Scene two. Now war arose in heaven. 
Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, the one who accuses them night and day before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short." Scene three. When the dragon saw that he'd been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured out water like a river from his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river and, uh, that the dragon had poured out from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. That's God's word for his people. Pretty vivid imagery, huh? It's quite the scene, quite the science fiction uh, fantasy being played out there. This great dragon and this woman and being thrown out of heaven. What's going on with all this? Well, we're going to get into that in just a second. First, as I mentioned, uh, a note on this time period. You saw it referenced there twice, this three and a half year time period. This is one of the images that was introduced earlier in Revelation chapter 11 last week, and I mentioned there were several images last Sunday that are going to recur later, and so we didn't take the time to go through them all last week, that we would go through them one at a time. Well, this morning I want to pick up this one. This was one of the images that cropped up initially in chapter 11, and we see it here again in chapter 12, and we're going to see it a few more times. It also crops up earlier in the Bible, outside the book of Revelation, and it's this idea of a three and a half year period of time, and it is variously described in the Bible. It's described as three and a half years, sometimes three and a half months or three and a half days, but usually three and a half years. It's also described as 42 months. Uh, It's also described as 1,260 days, because on sort of an idealized scheme of every month being 30 days long, 42 30-day months is 1,260 days, so it's just another way of saying the same thing. And last but not least, it is sometimes referred to as a time, times, and half a time. A time, usually interpreted as one year, times, two years, and a half a time, another half a year. All of these are four ways in the Bible of saying the same thing, referring to the same number. What's it mean? What's it mean? Well, that's a large and complicated question that we're going to boil down and simplify for the sake of time this morning. In general, people have understood this one of two ways. That either the Bible here is referring to a literal period of time that is exactly three and a half years in length, 
some Christians who see it this way think that that's a time period that's already passed in history, and there's various interpretations of that. Some believe it's a time period that is yet to happen in the future. But, but the common idea here is that the Bible is talking about a literal period of exactly 42 months or exactly three and a half years in which certain things are going to occur. The other way that this has largely been understood by Christians throughout the ages is that the three and a half years, the, the 42 months, is a symbolic reference to a specific period of time of indeterminate length in which certain things that are always associated with these numbers take place, namely difficulty for the people of God in the world as they serve God. And so that the, the three and a half years of the 42 months becomes a way of symbolically referring to a time period of difficulty for God's people that, that may be significantly longer or shorter than that. The number isn't exact. Now, uh, both are possible. Uh, the first interpretation is certainly possible that that's what the Bible means. And I want to present one reason this morning why I don't think that's what the Bible is saying, but why I think it's referring to the second. And the reason, there is way more than one, but I'm just going to give you one this morning. The reason is that when you start to look at how this operates, the way the Bible is put together, you begin to notice some things. You begin to notice some patterns that get picked up later and repeated, and then added to, and then once again picked up later. For example, Old Testament patterns that get picked up in the New Testament, and later added to and elaborated on. One of the most common patterns is this idea of the uh, a wilderness journey for God's people, and that started clear back in the well-known book of Exodus, when the ancient Israelites were taken by God through a literal desert, wilderness, wandering experience, and that repeatedly in the Bible becomes emblematic or symbolic for the journey of God's people through this earth on their way to not just a promised land, but on their way to heaven. And oftentimes this time period is associated with that. Here's what we're getting at. This may be the best way to, to drive at this. Um, have you ever had an experience where uh, you regularly were seeing something, but you never noticed it until somebody points it out to you? And then you're like, oh, you're right. Look at that. It's right there. I, I've seen it all the time. You know, like I, I, I'm famous. I'm just notorious for like when I'm driving, I'm, I'm like typical, uh, stereotypical linear guy, tunnel vision, right? I'm going from point A to point B and, you know, I'll be talking to my wife one day and she says, yeah, you know, I'm, I'm like, hey, we, we need a, you know, whatever, a, um, we're looking for a business or a restaurant or something. She's like, well, there's that one right on that street. I'm like, I've never seen a restaurant on that street. I drive on that street every day. She's like, well, it's been there for years. No, it hasn't. So the next day I drive and son of a gun, there it is. Where'd that come from, you know? It's been there the whole time. I'm just not seeing it. Uh, years ago, I had a friend when I was in high school point out to me, he says, have you ever noticed how many one-eyed cars there are? <laughs> you know, cars with like one headlight burnt out, so they're driving around at night with just one headlight. What are you talking about? You're crazy. No. Well, now I'm thinking about it. And so I start driving around. Lo and behold, man, I drove from one place to another for 10 minutes. I saw like six or seven one-eyed cars. It's amazing. Now, did, did, did all those cars suddenly have their headlights burn out that very night because I was looking for it? No, I was probably seeing them all along. I just never paid attention. See, now you're going to be looking for them too when you leave. <laughs> Somebody points it out and you realize, oh, it's been there all along. I've just never seen it. A lot of the patterns in the Bible are the same way. Uh, these are not like hidden Bible code, super secret stuff, Right? These are patterns that are in the Bible and they're right there and they're plain to see. But the Bible's a big book and, and there's a lot in it and so it's easy to miss them until somebody points them out. 
Let me give you an example of where the Bible constantly pairs this idea of three and a half years or 42 uh, months with a wilderness wandering for God's people. We already saw it right here in our passage. Uh, Both times that this uh, time period is mentioned uh, in Revelation chapter 12, it's mentioned in regard to God's people being out in the wilderness or this woman as she is pictured. Verse 6 Uh, The woman went to a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days, a place where she is to be nourished, and then it becomes even clearer later down in verse uh, 14, where a very similar scene unfolds. The woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness, or the desert, uh, to the place where she is to be nourished for a time, times, and half a time. That language is coming straight out of Exodus chapter 19 where God said to the ancient Israelites, I took you on the wings of an eagle out of Egypt and sent you off into the wilderness and provided for you. So clearly, this is being intentionally linked in John's vision, this number with the peoples of Israel in their ancient wilderness journey. By the way, how long were the ancient Israelites in the wilderness? The initial response is 40 years. Not quite, They were in the wilderness for 40 years after they refused to enter the promised land, but they were in the wilderness for a little bit longer than that. Once they originally left Egypt, God first brought them to Mount Sinai, gave them the Ten Commandments, told them how to build a tabernacle, they built it, and eventually took them to the edge of the promised land where they sent in the 12 spies. They didn't listen to the ones who said, we can trust God, and as a discipline, God said, you're going to wander in the desert for another 40 years until this disobedient generation dies off. The total amount of their wandering time was about 42 years. Nobody's 100% certain exactly how long it took them to get from Egypt to the promised land, but roughly two years is pretty close. So the whole wilderness journey of the Israelites was about 42 years long. Here's something even more interesting. Numbers chapter 33 is one of those chapters in the Bible that you read and you scratch your head and say, why is that in the Bible? Because it's dry and it's factual and it's boring. It is a list of all the places that the Israelites encamped during their wilderness wandering from the time they left Egypt to the time they entered the promised land. So they went here and they camped here. They went here and they camped here. They went here and they camped here. Go ahead, read it this afternoon. I dare you. You can't even pronounce half the places and you don't know where they are. And it's just mind numbing. It's dozens and dozens of these things. And you're like, why is that in the Bible? Until you go back and you count the number of encampments in Numbers chapter 33 and the total journey of the Israelites in the wilderness, guess how many there were? 42. You start to see this number, 42-year wandering, 42 encampments clearly recorded in the Bible. And then later in the Bible, it starts to pick up and repeat these patterns. Again, this isn't like secret, weird Bible code stuff. It's just later authors seeing what was there and then tying it into God's work throughout history. Let me just give you one more example for the sake of time. Uh, Elijah, the famous prophet Elijah, his prophetic ministry uh, against the uh, disobedient Israelite king Ahab and his evil wife Jezebel, and he told them to repent, and they did not do so, and so Elijah prayed that it would not rain, and it did not rain, and there was famine in the land. That was part of God's judgment against his uh, obstinate and disobedient people, and in fact, Uh, Elijah had to flee for his life because Ahab and Jezebel were so angry about this. They came after him. They wanted to kill him, so he had to flee from his life out to where? The wilderness, the desert. 
And there's no way that you could live in the desert, even less so when there's a drought going on. And so God supernaturally provided for Elijah in a variety of ways until this drought period ended. And the entire time that Elijah prayed that it would not rain and it did not rain was how long? Those of you familiar with the story? Three years and six months, according to James chapter 5. So here you've got this three and a half years, this 42, associated with a time period in which God's prophet declares his message and is attacked because of it and is taken to a difficult place of pain where God nonetheless preserves and protects him, not from the pain, but through the pain, and then eventually brings that period of time to an end. And there are many others. I'm not going to take the time to go through these now. Many of them in the Bible and some of them from Jewish history between the Testaments. But the point is, by the time you get to the first century, over and over and over again, you see this three and a half years, this 42 uh, months associated with the period of wilderness wandering for God's people as they follow him in the midst of a world that does not. um, It becomes emblematic, I think, in every case of a time period where God's people proclaim his message, the gospel of repentance. They experience hardship as a result, which is the whole theme of the book of Revelation, right? So it's not surprising to see this crop up again in this book. They are preserved through it, not from it, but through it, they're given what they need to to sustain and endure the period of difficulty by God until their work is complete and they are on their way to their final home. The original image of this was the Israelites going to the promised land. The ultimate fulfillment of that is God's people going to heaven. So over and over again, I think that's what the Bible is doing. That's what we see going on here. Now, that actually leads us right into these images. So let's, let's quickly point out the highlights of chapter 12 so we can see what's going on. And then more importantly, get to what are we supposed to make of this? What are we supposed to take away from this as modern day Christians? I mentioned that there's uh, three scenes. The first scene, verses one through six, is this picture of this woman uh, who is uh, being attacked by this beast, this dragon, uh, because the dragon is after her child. Now, it's not terribly difficult to identify who all of these main characters are. Uh, In the first vision, the identity of the woman is a little bit obscure, but her identity, I think, becomes more clear by the time you get to the end of the chapter. She represents uh, the people of God, uh, some of the way she initially appears uh, harkens you back to the, uh, the Old Testament people of God, the Israelites, and as she gives birth to the Messiah, it was the Jewish people from whom uh, the Messiah came. Her child clearly is Jesus Christ, the Messiah. He's described as one who would rule the nations with a rod of iron. That's an almost direct quote from Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, which is a prophecy about the Messiah. There, there can't be anybody else. That's clearly Jesus Christ. And the dragon, fortunately, we don't have to guess at who he is. We're told. One of the very few places in Revelation where you're given an image or a symbol and then John, the writer, tells you what the symbol means. He says, I'm going to tell you who this dragon is. That represents Satan, very clearly. So that's all laid out for us. We've got this picture of Satan being in opposition to God's people with a specific desire to destroy this child, Jesus Christ. But of course, he fails to do so. The child is whisked away from the dragon in verse 5, not so much for safety, but to ascend to heaven's throne. He's sitting on the throne. He's ruling, which is probably why the dragon wanted to kill him in the first place, because his future rule represented a threat to the dragon. The dragon tries to destroy him and fails, and he ascends the throne. And the woman, too, is whisked away from the dragon's reach. 
That's the scene. Now, what are we supposed to make of that? Well, read on. The next couple of scenes, which partially overlap with this, kind of add some more detail. The second scene uh, is a picture of now Satan battling the forces of God in heaven and losing. Because the Bible never presents a picture of the universe where there's like this perfect balance, kind of this uh, Eastern monistic sort of thing where there's light and there's dark and they're sort of evenly matched against one another and you want perfect balance in the world. That's not the biblical view of the world at all. There is good and there is evil in the Bible. And thank God, literally, good is stronger and good wins and that's a good thing. Satan is cast out of heaven uh, where he once stood in God's presence regularly accusing God's people of their failures and thus trying to undermine God's righteousness in redeeming them. But he is now cast out of heaven where he loses his place before God and he can no longer accuse God's people to their face. And verses 10 through 12 are the one piece of dialogue, as it were, uh, in this whole chapter, and that really is the key. The words and the, the statements of the voices in heaven praising God are, are, help, are, are what help us understand the meaning of all the other images. And so we're going to come back to them here at the end. Uh, briefly, we see that the reign of Jesus uh, is now uh, begun. The accuser of God's people is no longer able to accuse them because he's not there in heaven anymore to do it. The people of God, then, who have to now deal with this guy on earth are nonetheless able to overcome him, and we'll come back to that because that's the heart of this passage, and lastly, the heavens are overjoyed because he's gone. We finally got rid of that creature, Uh, but for those of you on the earth, he's still around for a little while, so look out. It's probably going to get worse before it's going to get better. Let me just say here that in the final analysis, this is the book of Revelation's answer to the question that the people it was written to were asking. Why are we as God's people suffering? That's the context and the background of the whole book of Revelation. We saw that in chapters two and three of the book. Why are we suffering? We worship the God who's supposed to be in charge of everything and we're doing what he wants us to do. So why, are, why isn't he stopping us from being persecuted when all we're doing is serving him? Why do we suffer? This is the book's answer. Because we live for him and serve him in the midst of a world where the dragon is raging in his uncontrolled wrath. Though that will not continue forever, it is true now. That leads us to the third and final scene. Here, uh, we get essentially kind of a repeat of the same thing that happened in scene one. Uh, The the dragons fighting the woman, except some of the details have changed. The first one sort of took place in heaven. This one is said to take place on the earth. Um, The initial target of the dragon in the first one was the child, the Messiah, whom he failed to destroy utterly. And the target in the second case is initially the woman herself. And when that is, the dragon is thwarted there, he turns his attention to what the Bible says is the rest of her children. Now those children also are identified in terms that are really unmistakable. John's very clear at the end of the chapter. These are those um, who worship Jesus Um, That is, they keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Who are these later children of the woman? They're Christians. That's you, that's me, in very clear terms, who now become the focus of the wrath of Satan. Again, in Exodus language, the, the, the woman is whisked away, given the wings of the eagle, Exodus 19, to the wilderness, a place where God, it's a hard place of existence, but nonetheless, it's a place where God will providentially provide for her, just as the Israelites lived a hard existence in the desert, yet God protected them. 
The dragon, now called a serpent, which if you're familiar with Genesis chapter 3, starts to sound really familiar. By the way, when we think of a dragon, we tend to think of a medieval European dragon. It's a land creature with four arms and claws and big leathery wings, and it's a reptile that breathes fire. Slightly different idea in the Bible. What they call a dragon um, was the, the ancient mythical beast Leviathan. It was a sea monster, essentially. It's still kind of large, reptilian, big fangs, sort of scary, pretty similar, but more of a sea monster kind of thing. And he tries to get her, but she's in the desert, so he can't go get her. And so unable to take his wrath out on the woman, as he intended, he storms off in a rage and pretends or, or prepares to inflict harm on Christians. That's actually going to lead us to the next chapter. So what do we do with this? What do we do with this? The point of these scenes is to show Christians today why it is they suffer when the God who's supposed to be in control of everything is the one that they worship. Answer? Because the lives that we're living now are only part of a much larger story. It's a story that's been going on for a long time. And yet, it is not without end. It will end one day. It's a story of conflict between Satan and God. Though not strong enough to defeat God outright, Satan opposes God's plan at every turn, and since God's plans have to do with people, God's people get caught up in the crossfire. That's what it says. How is that relevant for us today? What do we take away from this? Let me suggest a couple of things. And you may have noticed we titled the sermon rather provocatively this morning. Uh, Three ways to defeat Satan. Want to know them? I'm going to write a book. I'm going to get, make millions. It's going to be awesome, okay? This is the three-step self-help culture, so I'm going to write a three-step way to defeat Satan in your life. It's going to sell like hotcakes, okay? Here's the problem. I think there are three steps listed here to, for a Christian to defeat Satan, um, but they don't fit the common mold <laughs> of the three-step, five-step books that we normally write these days. The first thing we have to do, and the first thing I think we clearly take away from this, is to know who your real enemy is. Know who your real enemy is. It's Satan, Christian, not people. Ooh, this is really hard in practice. It's not that hard to figure out in our minds. Really hard in practice. Satan is, is clearly front and center here. In fact, again, this is one of the only places in the book of Revelation where we are explicitly told the literal referent of a symbolic image. Here's the dragon. Who is that? I'm just going to tell you it's Satan. Why would John just be that explicit about it? I've got to believe it's because that's kind of the point, one of the main points of the passage. God doesn't want us to miss this. Look who's front and center here. Look who your adversary is, church. Were the first century churches being persecuted by large and powerful Jewish synagogues? Yes, we saw that. Were they being persecuted by pagan-worshipping trade guilds that exerted all sorts of pressure on them to commit idolatry and fornication? Yes, we saw that. Were they being persecuted by the godless secular Roman Empire? Yes, we saw that. But who's front and center as the adversary in this chapter? There's an enemy above and behind them all. Know your enemy seems to be the first point to take away from this. 
Probably the best uh, known and most familiar passage of scripture on the topic of uh, spiritual warfare, as we usually call it, is in the sixth chapter of Ephesians. A very colorful description whereby the Apostle Paul encourages Christians to take on the quote-unquote armor for the spiritual battle. You know what he says right before that? Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Put on the whole armor of God so that you may be, may, may be able to stand against the schemes of people, godless governments, rival political parties, the devil. And just in case we missed it, in verse 12, he elaborates, for we do not wrestle against flesh and blood. The Bible couldn't be much more clear on this point. Unlike in the case of certain other religions, particularly fundamentalist Islam and others, the enemy is not the infidel, according to the Bible. It is not other people. We do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but we wrestle against the authorities, the cosmic powers, um, the rulers, the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness. We wrestle against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Know your enemy. And this means that if as a Christian, my first thought when I ask myself, who is the, the, the greatest threat to the church today? Who's the greatest opponent of the church? If my first thought is a person, a group, or an institution or human organization, then at that moment, it is proof I am not thinking in biblical terms. At least in that moment and on that issue. When I believe that the greatest threat, the greatest opponent to the gospel is a person, a group, or an institution, I am not thinking in biblical terms. Because the Bible is forceful and clear. Know who your enemy is. My kingdom, Jesus told Pilate, is not of this world. If it was, my servants would be in the streets fighting people and fighting Rome. Rome, Pilate, you are not my ultimate enemies. There's a spiritual battle going on. The real enemy of the church today is not the atheist organization Americans United for the Separation of Church and State. It's not. The real enemy of the church today is not Planned Parenthood. It isn't. It's not the Ku Klux Klan. It's not the Human Rights Commission or the ACLU. The real enemy of the church today is not Hugh Hefner, Lady Gaga, Barack Obama, Donald Trump, Rush Limbaugh, or Jon Stewart. It's not a real enemy. The real enemy of the church is not Black Lives Matter, the Tea Party, Hollywood, or even the mainstream media. It's not the real enemy. The real enemy is not the gay community, the black community, the Hispanic community, the white community. It is not immigrants, Jews, Muslims, Arabs, the rich. It's not the Democrats. It's not the Republicans. Am I communicating? Each and every one of the people and the groups and the organizations that I just referred to, along with dozens of others we could put on those lists, has, at least at times, stood for and advocated things that a biblically informed Christian 
would rightly object to and should probably be in opposition to. But none of them is the ultimate enemy. You see the difference? Satan is. The point of this, let's not demonize people. Let's demonize demons. Don't make people and organizations into Satan. Let's make Satan into Satan. Now, by the way, this is really hard, and it's really hard for at least a couple of reasons. First of all, it's human nature. If somebody stands for something that is totally opposed to the gospel and they're actively advocating for it, and there's all kinds of that kind of stuff going on in society today, it's really hard. It's just human nature. Like, there they are. There's my enemy. It's that person who's up there proclaiming that and advocating for that clearly godless idea. Part of it is just human nature. We naturally respond to what we can see and hear and feel and touch. And there's a real person, real flesh and blood. It's more abstract to say Satan's behind that. But I don't actually see him. And what's more, it's hard for another reason too. Because even if you and I as Christians are perfect in applying this principle, even if we're perfect at saying, I may oppose that idea and I'm going to fight against it and I'm in opposition to what this person or this group stands for, but they are not the real enemy. Even if you do that, you will not get the same treatment in return. Almost guaranteed. You will not get the same treatment in return. It is not very likely that people who are opposed to, for example, the biblical sexual ethic are suddenly going to say, I think biblical sexual ethic is regressive and I think we need to be more open-minded. I'm opposed to the biblical sexual ethic. But I understand those Christians, they're well-meaning. They're really not bad people. I just disagree with them. That's not what's happening. What's happening is you're going to be called hateful, you're going to be called homophobic, you're going to be called all sorts of nasty, horrible names. You're going to be attacked personally. And when you're attacked personally, it's human nature to what? Respond in kind. So for at least two reasons, we have the deck stacked against us and actually living this out. But friends, that's our calling. God says, know who your real enemy is. It's not people. Let's demonize demons, not people. That's why Satan, the dragon, is front and center in chapter 12. By the way, one last comment on this, and then I've got to move on. That doesn't absolve people and organizations from responsibility for what they believe and what they advocate for. In fact, chapter 13, the next chapter that we're going to look at, has to do with the human agencies through whom Satan works. So they are even acknowledged here in the book of Revelation. But I believe there's a reason that these visions don't start with them. They start with the real enemy because we need to start by understanding that even though people are responsible for God for what they say and what they advocate for, nonetheless, there is a real enemy that the church needs to understand and it's not people, it's demons. Secondly, let's get to the meat of the good stuff, the bestseller. If I'm a Christian and my real enemy is Satan, how do I beat him? I do believe there's three steps here. Verse 11 is the interpretive key to the whole book. That's where it really comes down to understanding what this means. And in that verse, you see three very clearly stated principles for Christians, people on the earth, to overcome the adversary, the dragon. Verse 11 says, in context, uh, they, that is our brothers, Christians on the earth, have conquered him, the dragon, by the blood of the lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even to death. Three things there. First, how do I defeat my enemy? Number one, by the blood of the lamb. 
In other words, we bank on the gospel. That's how you defeat Satan in your life. Which, let's be honest, is really weird when you think about it. It's totally counterintuitive. You get this picture of a dragon. I'm picturing like, how do I put on my chain mail and get my shield and my sword, right? How is God going to empower me to plunge the blade into the side of the beast and slay him? I'm going to strike the decisive blow, right? And just when you think that's what the Bible's about to say, you know what it says? Here's how you beat him. You don't do a thing. Because somebody much more powerful than you has already beaten him. So you beat him by sitting down, shutting up, and relying on Christ. Wait a minute. I thought you were going to give me the magic words to say to like knock Satan off his, off his game. No. They defeated him by the blood of the Lamb. The Bible says that when Jesus came, he died on the cross, and he did so as a substitutionary sacrifice. He went to the cross in your place and my place. Sin, the spawn of Satan, in our hearts is what has kept us apart from God. We have to deal with the consequences of that sin, or God is not just, and the consequences of that sin are eternal separation from God. And Jesus came to take that punishment and that separation on himself so that you and I wouldn't have to. The blood of the lamb is a reference back to chapter 5 when we saw Jesus pictured in heaven's throne room as a lamb, a sacrificial animal who had been slain. This is calling our attention back to the gospel because Jesus shed his blood so that you and I would not have to be bound by our sin. When Satan the accuser comes before God and says, that guy, that lady is a sinner and you are unjust to save them, it is the blood of Jesus that renders that accusation empty and completely void. You see, here's the biggest problem. I mean, the gospel strikes us somewhere along the line of the spectrum. On one end of the spectrum is those of us that are maybe more leaning toward being self-reliant and, and, and arrogant in our self-reliance. And on the other end of the spectrum are people who are totally defeated. You know, self-reliant people are like, look, I know I'm not perfect, but, but I'm, I'm, I'm a pretty good person, right? I try hard to do what's right. I try to treat people nice. I, I, I try not to do awful things to people. I work hard to do the right thing the right way and pay my taxes and be nice to people and all sorts of things. I mean, and you can hear in my language that what I'm trying to say is, like, I'm a, I'm a pretty good person. I'm building up my sense of, of who I am before God based on what I've done. That's self-reliance. On the other end of the spectrum are people who say, I know I've got nothing. And, and it's killing them. I can never get beyond my sin. I know my sin, and it kills me. Every time I think about it, it just traps me in a tar pit of guilt and of shame. Often what I'll do is pack my schedule, because that's a culturally acceptable thing to do now, so that from the moment I wake up to the moment my head hits the pillow, I've got a zillion things to do to preoccupy my mind, lest in an unintentional moment of quiet, my mind wanders to my deep, dark secret, or what I believe is my fundamental guilt. And I can't handle that. I would rather stay busy. I'd rather keep the radio on and the TV in the background so there's always noise so I don't have to think about the gaping hole at the center of my life because I know I don't measure up and it traps me in guilt. You know, no matter where you are on the spectrum and we're all some probably mix of those two somewhere, the gospel contains devastatingly good news for both groups. 
to those of us on the self-reliant end of the spectrum, here's the problem. When Satan the accuser goes before God and points out how much I don't deserve God's grace, at one level I know and I have to face the fact that he's right. He's right. Satan in the Bible is called a deceiver. He's called a deceiver in this very passage. He's called a liar. But every good lie has a half-truth baked into it, right? That doesn't mean everything he says is completely wrong. When he goes to accuse God's people of, of falling short of God's standard and therefore it is wrong for God to redeem such an unworthy people at one level, I gotta face the fact that I know he's right. The gospel is devastating because it undermines my sense of self-reliance. But on the other hand, the gospel also gives us the way that that problem is overcome. It's not through me trying to do better. It's not through me atoning for my wrong. It's not from me facing that deep, dark secret and finally making myself emotionally and psychologically and rationally okay with it and, and going and fixing the problems in my life by my own efforts because I can't fix them. How do we get out of this dilemma? Very simply, by the blood of the Lamb. The gospel of Jesus is the key to defeating Satan. Am I relying on myself? Am I refusing to rely on Jesus either because I'm relying on myself or because I'm so terrified at what I have to rely on Jesus for that I refuse to be honest for him? The Bible says open your heart up. Pour it all out. Pour out the abortion that you regret and that maybe nobody in your life right now knows you ever had. Pour out the porn addiction that is your deep, dark secret and keeps you trapped. Pour out the bitterness and the anger toward that person that obstinately refuses to forgive. There is no sin so great that you will out-sin the grace of God. Pour it out. Acknowledge it and let the blood of the lamb cleanse you. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb. Secondly, they overcame him by proclaiming the gospel. By proclaiming it. They overcame him, it says, by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. There are certain things that they said that defeated Satan in their lives. Now, all due respect to many of our more charismatic-leaning brothers and sisters in Christ all around the world, this has nothing to do with praying special formulaic prayers. You don't defeat Satan, according to this passage of Scripture, by claiming certain promises in Scripture as if the mere utterance in faith that I'm claiming a promise somehow disarms the power of Satan in your life at that moment. That's not the picture that's being painted here. We don't defeat Satan by binding him in Jesus' name as if praying that prayer, that formulaic prayer in faith will somehow disarm the power of Satan in my life at that moment. That's not what's being said here. The word of their testimony is what? What is their testimony? Their testimony is the, their experience of the gospel. This goes back to the first point. In other words, we bank on the gospel and then we proclaim the gospel by telling people how we've banked on the gospel and inviting them to bank on the gospel too. The power of Satan is overcome when people are pointed to Jesus Christ. 
when our need for the gospel is openly talked about. Been there, done that. No self-reliant lie here. But I'm also not trapped on the other end by my guilt and my shame because Jesus Christ has freed me from that. And even if I'm gradually and only very slowly learning how to process that and own that in my life, I recognize its truthfulness, so I am free to talk about this because this is not a defining issue for me. The gospel is. You give that kind of a testimony and the power of the gospel in the life of a person is put on display. When God's people explain with words that all mankind is guilty before God and that every human being has the opportunity to repent and find life in Jesus, it begins to thwart and undermine the gospel-opposing influence of our enemy. Lastly, you proclaim, you bank on the gospel, you proclaim the gospel. Thirdly, you live the gospel. And this one is where it gets perhaps the most unintuitive, counterintuitive, the most unexpected. Because living the gospel relates to this last phrase of verse 11. They overcame him by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives, even to the point of death. Sometimes the little words make a big difference. You see that word for in the Bible? That connects what comes next with what went before. In other words, the way that you bank on the gospel or the means by which you proclaim the word of your testimony, is you love not your life even to death. These three steps are not really three completely distinct steps. You might look at them as three sides of the same triangle, three facets of the same thing. They love not their lives even to death. What's being said there? What's being said there is that Christians who overcome Satan's influence in their life are so moved by the gospel, so committed to the promise of eternal life that I am living for my eternal home and therefore I'm not living for this life, meaning I'm willing to put anything on the table in this life and lose it if that's what proclaiming the gospel means. I'm gladly willing to suffer the loss of lesser things in this life in order to gain the ultimate things of eternal life. That in itself is both banking on the gospel and proclaiming the gospel, not only with my words, which is certainly included, but also in the value system that I live out with my life. You see, it isn't enough to simply say we're banking on Jesus and to mean it in, in terms of our intentions, but then go on living the kind of life that everybody else lives in this world. It's when we live the promise of the gospel that our words about the promise of the gospel are made more powerful. So I couldn't help but feel a little convicted about the questions that were rising in my mind as I was reading this passage this past week. Am I living for my marriage? That's the key relationship. That's what I'm going for. That's what I'm banking on. That's what I want to make me happy. Everything's about that. Am I living for my weekends? That's when I can have fun. That's what I can do. Am I living for my lifestyle? My career and my income and the kind of lifestyle that we have, that I would never want to give up. Am I living for my kids, my grandkids, my family? All of these are good things, very good things until or unless for the Christian they become ultimate things. 
At that point, the Bible would call them an idol. What if, heaven forbid, living for Jesus cost me a job? What if it cost me a relationship? What if it cost me some weekends? What if, in those rare cases, though they do still happen in parts of the world, it cost me my life? The Christian who stands up in any of those cases and says, yes, I'll gladly pay the cost, is not so much a great spiritual giant who just wills himself or herself to do the right thing. It is simply a normal human being who has fallen so in love with what we can't lose that we're gladly willing to give up what we can in order to gain it. That's the promise of the gospel. Jesus himself is our model for this in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2, and I close with this wherein we see him, the Bible says, enduring the cross, his own suffering, which did cost him his life and a great deal of pain leading up to that, for, the Bible says, the joy that was set before him. He was looking to his eternal reward when he could rise from the dead and ascend to heaven's throne. And he said, it's with my eyes fixed on that goal that I can get through this difficult and painful ordeal that even cost me my life. And then our Savior says, go follow my footsteps. For some of you, it'll cost you your life. For most of us, we won't have to die just because we're Christians, but we may suffer all sorts of other things. And Satan's power in our lives and in this world is undermined and defeated despite his short-time temper and his fuming rage when God's people proclaim and live and bank everything on the gospel because then Jesus is put on display and that's when people's lives change. Friends, we're about to enter a time of communion right now. I'd like to ask all the ushers that aren't back there already, go ahead and get ready. I'm gonna pray for us in just a moment. It's our custom the second Sunday of every month to receive communion together in our seats. This is a time where God's people, if you have a personal relationship with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, gather together to experience this time of communion, which is a way of proclaiming, essentially, I'm a Christian. It's a way of saying, I am banking everything on the blood of Christ. And so as the ushers uh, come forward and get ready to distribute the elements, I'm gonna pray for us and, and, and invite you uh, to receive, if you are a Christian, if you've given your life to Jesus Christ, to receive those elements in that act of worship. And if you're not a Christian this morning and you're with us, we're delighted that you're here. You can feel free to just let the elements pass by and not partake of them, that's okay. Because partaking of these is to say, I'm a Christian, I'm banking everything on the gospel. Let me pray for us and then the ushers will distribute the bread.